my, uh, my throat. <laughs> Those three songs were wonderful. This is, a, this is a day all about Jesus. I look forward to this day. Yeah. Good morning, everybody. <laughs> Thank you. I really appreciate all the prayers that everybody's given me and the encouragement that I've received this morning. It's, it's been truly a blessing. I look forward to sharing with you today and to all those who couldn't be here with us that are watching on the live stream, good morning. I'm glad that uh, you're here with us as well today. Over the last few weeks, we've had some really just awesome messages. You know, like uh, the doctrinal messages that Pastor Brian has given starting in April to uh, Dane's just wonderful description of God's loving kindness. And then we had Ben's message last Sunday where he goes over Acts chapter 9. And he shows God's uh, transformative power in that message. To, to transform a person like Saul, who despised Jesus and the way, into Paul, a powerful preacher of the gospel. Well, uh, to start this off, let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for this opportunity to stand here. Lord, thank you for the message that you've given me. And I just ask, Father, that you use this vessel, Lord, that you speak through me the truth of your word. Lord, thank you for everything that you've done, the gifts that you've given us, the Holy Spirit that you bestowed on your disciples. Today, being Pentecost, as we remember that event, Lord, thank you for for dying on a cross, becoming a curse that we might have new life and live in you. Lord, we just ask that, that you be glorified today. Let's pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So to fully grasp everything that I want to convey today, um, I want to reiterate some of what Pastor Brian spoke about in his April 17th message called The Doctrine of Regeneration. In this message, he goes over what it is to be regenerated. And he gave a description of this. And in that description, if I can find it in my notes here, <laughs> he says, in this we learn that regeneration is God's sovereign work of imparting spiritual life to a spiritually dead sinner, thereby turning the dead sinner into a living saint. Before regeneration, the dead sinner was repelled by God and disobedient to God. After regeneration, the living saint is drawn to God and obedient to him. John 3.3 tells us, Unless one man is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, and behold, the new has come. In this sermon, we, we learn that, well, we kind of all know that we don't give birth to ourselves. 
as something completely out of our control. Our, the birth that Jesus is talking about is a spiritual birth, and it's in the same manner of a, of a living birth that we go through. We, we are born new in Jesus. Ezekiel 36 confirms this when he says, I will cleanse you, I will give you a new heart, and I will put my spirit within you. Ephesians 2.1 also tells us the dead in trespasses, or that we are dead in our trespasses and sins. Ephesians 9 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing, it is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Jesus had to die on the cross. Jesus had to be raised up on the third day. His death and resurrection is key to our regeneration. In God's wonderful grace, He saves us through faith. He gives to us. It is a gift that He gives to us. I preface my sermon with this because it is Jesus. He is who I will be speaking of today. It is in his life, death, and resurrection that makes it possible for us to go undergo our own regeneration that allows us to be born again. It's fitting, and I didn't prepare this. Uh, Pastor Brian asked me to speak several weeks ago, and the Lord just laid on my heart to speak of Jesus. So today I'm going to be going through primarily Luke chapter 24. This is going to be uh, the outline for my sermon. So if you could turn to Luke 20, uh, chapter 24, I'm going to go over, um, well, I'm, I'm going to kind of summarize the beginning section of Luke here, and I'll be referring to some scriptures throughout. So to get a background of Luke 24, Jesus has died, he was hung on the cross, and now it's the third day. So there's, uh, as verse 1 says, but on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking spices they prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. When they were, and they were, while they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground. The men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men to be crucified and on the third day rise. Verse 8 says, And they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James and the other women with them 
who told these things to the apostles. Verse 11. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. Then we have Peter, of course. He runs, he rose and ran to the tomb. Stooping in, he looks, stooping and looking in, he saw the linen clothes by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. Man, Christ is risen. The tomb was empty. They were not expecting this, though. When the women came to the tomb, they were fully prepared to see Jesus there because they did not remember what Jesus had told them. The angels had to remind them. The disciples' own response was very similar. If you look at verses 10 through 11, 11 specifically, it says, But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. So the story continues. Peter, of course, ran to the tomb. He found it empty. And so he's, he's coming back. He's coming back to a village that's about seven miles outside of Jerusalem, him and a man named Cleopas. And they're talking about all these events, right? They're discussing it amongst themselves. And as they're discussing these things, Jesus himself appears to them, comes up behind them, and is listening to the conversation, and they don't even know who he is at this time. Luke 24, 17 tells us, what is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still looking sad. Cleopas answers him in verse 18, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem that does not know the things that have happened these days? I mean, can you imagine, right? Like, all that happened those three days earlier, Jesus was crucified. The entire city of Jerusalem was in an uproar. They wanted him dead. They traded Barabbas for him. He carried his cross through the streets, and then he was crucified. And when he was crucified, the earth shook. There was a massive earthquake. The dividing veil between the temple was torn in two. The entire city would have known these things. Not only that, but the, star, the sky darkened. I mean, it, so you imagine Cleopas here. He's like, how do you not know what's going on? So these two begin to tell this stranger about himself and about him being crucified and the women that went to the tomb and found it empty. And look at verses 25 through 27. He says to them, this is Jesus, of course, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Man, what a, what a thing. 
Now, the real problem here with the disciples isn't the fact that their master is dead. It's that they don't understand the Scriptures. And the Scriptures that they're talking about there in that sentence is what we refer to as the Old Testament, right? That's, that's all of the Scriptures. So this stranger, he helps them to understand. Of course, this stranger is Jesus. And what did he tell those two disciples? We don't know exactly what he said. If there was any a time that I could go back in history and record something, that is a moment that I would like to record. Jesus Christ describing himself in the Old Testament, making himself known to his disciples. The one thing we do know is his heart. If you look at verse 26, it says, Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? It was necessary for him to die. Even before he was finished, and even before he revealed who he was, there was a transformation that began in the disciples. We see this it says, they, say, they said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while, we, while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? The Old Testament scriptures began to open up to them. After this takes place, Jesus, of course, vanishes. They go back to Jerusalem, and they meet up with the other 11. As this event is recounted again, to those that are with them, Jesus appears, and they're all frightened. They think he's a ghost. And what does he do? He says, look at my hands, look at my feet, touch me, feel me, I'm flesh. He asks for something to eat so that they can see that he is a living man. Because Spirits are not physical beings. Verses 44 through 49 say, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures, and he said to them, Thus it is written, that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things, and behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with the power on high. Christ is enabled his disciples to understand not merely a few passages of the Old Testament, but the scriptures, the whole Old Testament. What do these scriptures really say? Christ introduces an explanation with these words, thus it is written. That is, he promises to give them the substance and the heart of what is written in the Old Testament. While he says, what he says next contains the answer. 
that Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning in Jerusalem. So we find that the whole Old Testament has its focus in Jesus Christ, his death and his resurrection. Paul says the same thing in different words in 1 Corinthians 10.11, where it says, Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction, on whom the end of the ages has come. And Jesus also says in Matthew 5.17-18, through 18, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have, I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth passes away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Now if you look in the beginning, the first chapter of the book of John, what does verse 1 say? 1 through 3, really. It says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was nothing, was not anything made that was made. Jesus is that Word who is with God and, and who is God. Through Him all things are made just as these verses tell us. Every word of the Old Testament then is the word of God himself through Jesus. So the beautiful creation event that we read that starts out Genesis, everything it's, was done through Jesus. We read in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 that all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. The Old Testament is Christ's word to us, as well as God the Father's word to us. It teaches us about Jesus Christ. Such is what Jesus is teaching his disciples in Luke 24. Christ is the focus of the message of the Old Testament. He is the one whom it points forward to, whom it speaks to, and whom it points to in symbols. There's so much in the Old Testament that shows Jesus, that talks of the Messiah, the one to come. These are the things I'm going to kind of look at now. Is what was it like to hear this message in Luke 24 from our Savior. Have him describe himself to the disciples that their eyes might be opened, that their heart might be opened to who he truly was. And there's so much that I can't go over at all, so I have chosen a few things to look at. And I want to begin this off with Genesis 3.15 i got to give a good shout-out to my twin brother. I was telling him the things that I was going to do and what was on my heart. He was like, oh, you should, 
I told, I told him about Genesis 3.15. He's like, he, he tells me this special word. It's called proto-evangelum. I've never heard of it. But this is the proto-evangelum. Let me read Genesis 3.15. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This is really the first look at the gospel message in the Bible. That is why it's called the Proto-Evangelum. This is a two-part word. It's a compound of two Greek words. Protos, meaning first, and Evangelum, meaning good news or the gospel. And this imagery in this verse of her offspring bruising the head and his heel being injured is a, is a picture. The her offspring is the seed of the woman, essentially, which refers to the virgin birth. The seed comes from the man, and the woman will bear the child. But in this, it's, it is her offspring, hers alone. So a picture of Jesus, the snake, the serpent that he, whose head he's crushing is Satan, the serpent of old. The one who confused or, I got I to look at my words here, <laughs> losing my train of thought. The serpent when he tempted Adam and Eve, they were made perfect in Christ. They were made perfect by God, really. That's, that's what I mean to say. They were made perfect by God. And the serpent told them, will you really die if you eat of that, the, the fruit of the tree, the knowledge of good and evil? Basically, he showed them that their sin is that pride where they want to be like God, to know these things. And Jesus, now he is our Messiah. He's crushing Satan when he dies on the cross. And the bruising of, of his heel is his death when he died on the cross. It is a clear picture of Jesus. I'm going to go to Numbers 21, 4 through 9. It goes along with this, another symbol of Jesus in the Old Testament. It tells how the children of Israel spoke out against the Lord, and God sent fiery serpents that bite those who speak out and they died. So then they go, to, they go to Moses and they ask him to pray, for they had sinned. Verse 8 and 9 say, 
Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent, and he set it on a pole, and he lifts it up. And if the serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. Now that serpent that's on a pole is a picture of Jesus on the cross. The bronze serpent was meant to be reminding them, the Israelites, of the cause of their sin. It was meant to carry their minds back to the Garden of Eden where Satan came in the form of a serpent to tempt Adam and Eve. The punishment for their sin brought into the world through the temptation that the serpent of old was laid out on Jesus at the cross. The penalty for that sin fell on him. He became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. It's another perfect picture. In that story, those serpents, you know, that's man in our sin, rebelling against God. We are condemned to death. Those serpents would bite those Israelis and they would, they would die. So God gave them a way out of that death. Look at the serpent on the pole, right? Look at Jesus. He is our way out of death. If you look at John 3, 14 through 18, it says, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that He gave His, only, His one and only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Whoever believes Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. This picture of Jesus on the cross is also found his, in, in, the, uh, in the prophets. Another perfect picture of what Jesus did when he when he was suffering on that cross is Isaiah 53. When you read this, I'm, I'm going to read the entire chapter of Isaiah 53. And as I read it, I want you to reflect on how Jesus felt in the Garden of Gethsemane before he was to be crucified. Who has believed what he has heard from us and to who, whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like the root out of a dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, 
a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised. And we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we were healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that was led to the slaughter, and like sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for this generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgressions of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in, de in his death. Although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. What a picture of Jesus. Things can also... Uh, whoops, I, sorry, I'm going to go to another section. <laughs> um, so Luke 24, 44 also mentions Psalms, right? As one of those lists of things in in Scripture that point to Jesus. So I would be remiss not to look into the Psalms. So let's look at Psalm 22. If you can turn there. This Psalm speaks of Christ's suffering, 22, 1 through 21, and His glory in 22, 22 through 31. The Psalm is a prophetic Psalm of our Savior. These things have uh, spoken about in the psalm did not happen to David, but to Jesus. For the sake of time, I'm going to be, not going to be reading the whole psalm, but I will just read some of the verses. I encourage you to read the psalm and think of Jesus. Verse 1 opens, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Does this sound familiar? Verse 2. 
Matthew 27, 46 says, And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Back to Psalm 22, verses 14 through 18 are very recognizable as well. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death, for dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Verse 18 here is very remiss of Matthew 27, 35, which says, And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. Of course, Jesus is crucified on the cross, so his hands and his feet were pierced, just as it mentions here in the psalm. Psalm 22 is one of many examples throughout the Psalms. There are actually 16 out of the 150 Psalms or Mosaic. They're called Messianic Psalms. Uh, those Psalms are Psalms 2, 8, 22, 23, 24, 40, 41, 45, 68, 69, 72, 89, 102, 110, and 118. And many other References of Jesus are throughout the Psalms. There's so much to say about Jesus in the Old Testament. Christ is revealed through promise, as we saw in the symbol that I mentioned in Genesis 3.15, the promise of Jesus on the cross to crush the serpent. There's also promises from the prophets, and I want to take a look at that today as well. If you can look at Isaiah 7, verse 14. It says, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. This promise from this prophet was fulfilled in Matthew 1, through 23, which says, All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgins shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. In addition to these promises and prophecies, 
which clearly foretell the person and work of the coming Messiah, Christ. Uh, Christ is present in the Old Testament in the form of types and shadows. The word type comes from the Greek word tupos, which can literally mean an impress or an imprint. A tupos is what left the mark from the nails in Jesus' hands and feet, that impression that was made. John 20, 25 shows this where the disciples like, I'm not going to believe you unless I see the hands, you know, see the holes, see those impressions. Talks about that. The holes in Jesus' hands were an imprint from these nails. This is, in a sense, what we have in the Old Testament. It's an imprint of Christ, just like the holes in His hands. They're not the nails themselves, so the Old Testament types are not Christ Himself, but they bear witness to Him, just as those imprints in His hand bear witness to what happened on the cross. Paul even alludes to this about Adam as a type in Romans 5.14. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those sinning, was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. In addition to these people being types, and there's many more people. I mean, there's Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Joseph. All of these people could be types of the Messiah. But there are also places being types of our Messiah. One such place is Bethel. There, Jacob is given a vision of a ladder which connects heaven and earth. And he sees angels ascending and descending from the ladder. And at the top he sees the Lord himself. And the Lord renews his covenant promises to Jacob. Genesis 28:16 says, then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, surely the Lord is in this place. And I did not know it. In John, Jesus is talking to Nathanael. This is John 1, verse 51. And Jesus is saying to Nathanael, and oh, wait, I'll read the verse first. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. What Jesus is saying to Nathanael in this verse is, in effect, I am the ladder connecting heaven and earth. I'm the one who will fulfill God's covenant promise to Jacob and bring salvation to the ends of the earth.
we see the New Testament repeating what has already been revealed in the Old. Another such place that I wanted to, to speak about was the Red Sea. The Red Sea was parted for Moses as they left Egypt, which is also a shadow of the world. But that Red Sea, the Israelites crossed through. They crossed over. And what happened after the Israelites reached the shore on the other side, going to the promised land, the sea collapsed on all of Pharaoh's army. And the Egyptians drowned. That in itself is a, is a picture of baptism. Here we are, sinners, dead to Christ. And when we are baptized, we go through this spiritual death and resurrection. The old is, is dead and the new is risen. Let's look at 1 Corinthians 10, 1 through 4. It tells us, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Jesus demonstrates an awareness of the Old Testament types when he speaks of his crucifixion and his baptism. In an answer to James and John's request when they're asking him, who's going to sit at your right hand? This is in Mark 10.38. Jesus says to them, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink of the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism which I am to be baptized? It was the cross that Jesus, like the Egyptians, drowned in the waters of God's judgment so that Israel, uh, so that the Israel of God in the new covenant, like the Israel of God in the old covenant, could reach that heavenly shore. Paul saw this pattern. He understood the typology of the water judgments through the Old Testament. He saw how they were fulfilled in Christ. He understood how baptism offers a picture of Christians safely passing through the waters of God's judgment through, the, through faith in His Son. So promises, prophecies... Psalms, they're all in types. They hardly exhaust the number of places Christ is present in the Old Testament. To name just a few more in passing, Christ fulfills the Old Testament as the keeper of the law, the singer of Psalms, the wisdom of God, and the suffering servant, and the righteous king, and many more. 
So going back to Luke 24, it's significant that Jesus said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you. That everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. He opened their minds to understand the scriptures, as it says in 45. It was necessary, as it says in 46, for Christ to suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. And that repentance for the forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning in Jerusalem. As I said before, Jesus opened their minds. He gave them understanding of the Scripture because He had already suffered and rose on that third day. And they didn't even recognize Him. They didn't understand why He was here, why He was sent. It was necessary for Him to die. Now, he wants them to proclaim his name to all nations, including the Gentiles, but beginning with, the, with Jerusalem. They needed to be equipped to do this work. And he says in verse 49, to stay in the city until you are clothed with power on high. The Holy Spirit is the promise of the Father. Jesus spent three years teaching his disciples, performing miracles, healings, preparing them for the eventual suffering, for his eventual suffering, death, and resurrection. He's preparing them for the Great Commission. The Great Commission is shown here, really, in, in verse 47. And that repentance for sins for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in His name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. This is expanded upon in Matthew 28, 19 through 20, famous verse of the Great Commission, which says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This commission is not only for the disciples, but it's for all of us. We are all to make disciples. This is also his final command before his ascension. It's not a suggestion either. It is a command. Jesus wanted his disciples to know that the cross was a necessary part of God's redemptive plan and that it would be in his name, the name of the crucified, risen Savior, that salvation comes to the world. Charles Spurgeon wrote, they were told by their great master what to preach, 
where to preach it, how to preach it, and even where to begin to preach it. God still opens people's hearts and minds to understand the Scripture and to see His glory. This should be an encouragement to us all. An encouragement for us to engage in the Scripture, the very Word of God, and to share it with those around us. Seeking as Jesus tells His disciples to proclaim His name to all the nations. Ben shared with us last Sunday about Paul's conversion. And I, it was a, Acts 9 is a wonderful set of scripture. And we see this, this whole story of Jesus speaking of himself in the scriptures, in Paul. Paul's whole life, if there was any man that could say like, I am blameless. I know Scripture. It was Paul. He was zealous. He was hunting down those who spoke the name of Jesus, those who believed in the way. And he was, he, he lists, he talks of himself about all the different things. You know, in, in Philippians 3, 4 through, 4 through 6, really, it's, But verse 6 says, As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness, under the law, blameless. Paul knew Scripture. He knew the Old Testament, but what was he missing? He was missing Jesus. He was missing Jesus in Scripture in the same way his own disciples were missing him. So what did we learn in, in Ben's Ben's sermon last week, Jesus revealed himself to Paul. Paul was not only blinded in knowledge spiritually of Christ, he was blinded by Christ on the road to Damascus, right? He falls on his face. Who are you? I am Jesus. I'm the one who you're persecuting. And then we see this conversion in him, this regeneration in Paul's life. That's what Jesus wants for all of us. He wants us to be regenerated. He wants us to be new creations, to be born again. He's a perfect picture. You know, Ananias... It says in 9.17, He departed and entered the house. He laid his hands on him. Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus appeared to you on the road which you came, by which you came and has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. So Saul's eyes were open to the truth of Scripture. And what does he do? The very first thing he does Acts 9.20. And immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues. Saying, he is the son of God. And in 9.22 it says, 
Paul, but Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who were in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. He was now proving Jesus in the Old Testament. This was his commission in Acts 26, 17 through 18. Delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you to open their eyes so they may, may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. God prepared, he prepares people to receive his message. He prepares people to receive the forgiveness of sins. He opens their hearts and he commands us and commissions us just in the same manner as he commissioned his disciples, in the same manner Paul received his commission. We can see this as well in Scripture. Jesus preparing someone to receive a message. This is shown in Acts chapter 16, 13 through 15. I'm just going to read a portion of the scripture here. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed we were, there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. That's a picture right there of the Lord preparing her to receive the message that Paul was to give. And consequently... She was baptized, and her, her household as well. Turning to the Lord is the key to seeing the glory of the Lord in the Old Testament. 2 Corinthians 3, 12 through 18 tells us, Since we have such a hope, we are very bold, not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened. For to this, when they read the old covenant, the same veil remains, unlifted. Because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to our Lord, that veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. 
So I urge you today in the very name of the Lord Jesus Christ, to turn your hearts to Him. He is the one Creator God, and His Spirit will dwell in you. Sorry, I can't read anymore. (laughs) Open your hearts today. See that God created you in His image. The serpent of old deceived your parents into thinking that you could be like God. But instead, he separated you. He separated you from God through sin. God wants to regenerate you He wants to give you spiritual life, making you born again. Isn't it a wonderful gift that God loved the world? He loved each of you so much that He planned from the beginning of time to have His own Son become a curse, hung on a tree, which is the cross, and die for your transgressions. The Lord's gift is of understanding is decisive. The Lord is pleased to give understanding to those who seek Him. Not to the indulgent couch potato. Press on to know the Lord and proclaim the Scriptures to others. Family, friends, neighbors, co-workers, knowing that the Lord is still in the business of opening people's hearts and minds to understand the Scriptures and to see His glory. That's what I have for you today. I want you to know Jesus. I want you to see Him in Scripture. And I want you to share Jesus with others. It's so fitting. I had no idea when I started this message that it would be delivered on Pentecost. I didn't even know that till yesterday evening, and I didn't even know what Pentecost was. I looked on my calendar, and it said, Sunday, Pentecost. I looked it up, and what a fitting message. The seventh Sunday from Easter. Pentecost is a celebration to remember the descending Holy Spirit on the Apostles. So today, I pray that the Lord will fill you with His Spirit. That He will embolden you 
to share him with those around you. The risen Savior, found by those women at the tomb in Luke 24, empty. God's only Son, sent to die on the cross for you and for the world. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your love. Thank you for demonstrating your love, Lord, by sending Jesus to die on a cross for our sins. Lord, you had the opportunity to wipe out the entire world through the flood. Yet you saved Noah, again another type of our Messiah. You brought him through the flood that we might have a line, that there might be a line to the Savior, a line through David. Lord, thank you for all the pictures that you've given us of Christ in the Word. May we be encouraged to read the Word to commune with you, to know you. Maybe we have the courage to speak of you everywhere. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.